He has been nominated for prestigious awards. Was included in the list of the 100 most influential people in finance in the world. He was a fellow at the World Bank, but now has given his life to mission and ministry, pouring his energies into lifting up those who need a helping hand. His name is John Casillas, and this is our conversation. John Casillas, thanks very much for joining me. Great to have you here. Thank you so much, John. It's a pleasure to be here. It is written. We've got a lot to talk about. We'll talk about some of what you have done and some of what you are doing. You lead an organization called Global Rise, and you're focusing your work where? We'll get to the details, but just give me the, the brief outline now. Global Rise, our vision is a world of healthy kids. And as you can imagine, that's a lot of work. Uh, we're starting in Africa. And we have our sites on India and Guatemala, primarily because those are the the uh, largest stunting zones in the entire world. Okay, so a world of healthy kids. You're helping people today. I want to talk with you about that in depth, but let's go back just a little bit. Uh, we'll start right at the beginning. Where'd you spring from? Where were you raised? Plumstedville, Pennsylvania. I know everybody has heard of that. So it's the center of <laughs> it's the center of. Something, I'm sure. <laughs> the center of the universe, as we used to say. But it's a, a quaint old town in, in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And uh, uh, we, we were eight children and uh, ten, ten strong in our family. My mom was the uh, spiritual rock, always brought us to church. Uh, she finally brought Dad in through her example. Oh, amen. And, uh, we, we used to travel 45 minutes every Sabbath to go to the Bucks County Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I've been to the Bucks County Church, great church. Yes, I, I think you met my uncle there too. I once. did, <laughs> I did, fantastic. So what's this, what's this, these award nominations and the 100 most influential people in the world in finance? That sounds like some pretty heady stuff. So walk me through your journey to that. What were you doing? Well, you... You know, when I found out about the the award, the the magazine Treasury and Risk magazine, they uh, they didn't tell us about it. So I was just you know walking inside the house, and I got this in text and this congratulatory message, and I sort of looked at it and laughed. Uh, I was I was I didn't understand it. Later, I, I picked up on the meaning of it, and it was it was uh, pretty remarkable. Uh, so, well, to get to that point, uh, we have to go back probably 12 years okay. um, or, or longer if now, probably 22 years, uh, to 2000 and maybe even a little bit before that. When I was working in healthcare administrative management, we, uh, were, develop- we were developing a company, my brother and I, Paul, uh, that dealt with revenue cycle management in the healthcare industry. And uh, after we we did that, we sold that company to a banking firm. And uh, it seems a little bit strange selling a healthcare revenue cycle management company to a banking firm. But uh, they were working with uh, over a thousand community banks trying to finance healthcare receivables. And if you know anything about a healthcare receivable, it's a very complex. It doesn't act like many other receivables. 
So you have to be able to understand the value of that receivable in order to lend against it. Okay. And that's what the banks wanted to do. Yeah. So we were creating the engine to make that happen. And it was through that journey that I discovered the, the power that banks have, really, uh, the technology, the uh, in, in many ways, the ATM is 40 years above or advanced more than what we see in healthcare in terms of access to our healthcare data. Mm. So I started to put these pieces together and, and uh, develop a framework called medical banking. Um, eventually leaving that company and starting the medical banking project. Okay. So explain medical banking to me <laughs> briefly and in a way that I will understand. Uh, medical banking is, is taking technology in the banking industry merging it or integrating it with the healthcare IT space to reduce transaction processing in healthcare. In fact, we found potentially $35 billion in savings annually by doing just that. Uh, It does, however, involve issues of privacy. And when we started to proclaim the medical banking message, um, uh, we had to deal with that issue uh, in the industry. So, I was asked to testify a couple times or a few times to a subcommittee of, of uh, Congress. Actually, they're, they're appointed by Congress, the National Committee on Vital and Health Statistics, uh, to describe the uh, potential access that banks might have to health mm-hmm. information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was important because HIPAA was a societal mandate to keep our records private. So there was a lot of uh, discussion in the privacy world at that time and it still remained, it's ongoing, about how we keep our health records private. So we had to wrestle through those issues. And it was through that that news organizations started calling. And before you knew it, uh, we were all over the place, <laughs> you know, uh, being interviewed on TV and other places uh, to try to sort through um, when banks have access to health information. And it became a hot political table, yeah. a, a potato in, in, uh, in Washington, D.C. And how did that get worked through? Was there any resolution to that question? It, 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 it took a long time. Uh, the Department of Health and Human Services held a few uh, meetings, and, um, and it continues to roll through. But essentially, as we move towards a digital environment, um, Healthcare organizations are moving health, our health information now into the digital space sure. so that we can have access to them. Ideally, we'd have access to them through our phone, right? Just like we do with banking. There's a lot of systems that are developed in banking that move data from the banking world into our phone. Sure. Now we have to repeat that in the healthcare side, okay? The idea of medical banking was to unify that so that we don't have to spend twice as a society on all the billions and billions of dollars cost to make that happen. Sure, you've already got the framework. You already yeah. have the pipeline. It's working for banking. Why don't we just make it work for health? Yeah, bring in the healthcare space. So what you've got is you've got an archaic system. Uh, the idea of privacy is pretty archaic as well. Privacy is very diminished in the digital world. You're trying to bring that world with this world, retain the old safeguards, keep everybody happy. Yeah. Hey, good yeah. luck with that. <laughs> yeah, and banks are, are actually starting to, to move in, in those directions. Uh, there's, we've seen some major acquisitions of banks, of, of healthcare firms. So it's, it's happening, but it's happening slow. And the policy, uh, of course, areas is trying to catch up with it and make sure that everything's safe for the consumer. Now, how did you get involved with the World Bank? So when I sold the medical banking project, I sold it to an information 
a health information technology society called HIMSS. They convene the largest gathering of health information technology groups in, in the world. And uh, they, they like the idea of bringing the banks into the healthcare IT tent, okay? Uh, because they're all things healthcare IT. So, uh, so they acquired the medical banking project. And when they, when I did, uh, when they did that, um, they, they asked me to form a relationship with the World Bank, which they had been trying to form for a period of time. The World Bank had a number of health IT implementations all over the world. There was at that time, I think we counted around 53 worth uh, about a billion and a half wow. uh, uh, dollars. And, and we think that was just the tip of the iceberg. Um, but they, they asked me to come in to look at those health IT implementations. I, I actually sent uh, the thesis of medical banking to the lead economist at the World Bank. And uh, he was impressed with it, and he asked me to come in. And when he uh, interviewed me, he went to his higher-ups, and they formed a new, the first fellowship, uh, Global Health IT Fellowship at the World Bank, and I became that fellow. It's pretty heady stuff, isn't it, moving around with these uh, heavyweights of, of world banking? You know, it's interesting. Uh, it, it, was, it was amazing, okay, uh, what, what, what happened. But um, none of it was planned. None of this was sure. planned, the, 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 you know, the being, being nominated for the award for the, one of the most influential in finance. That wasn't planned. Uh, I was just working every day trying to get the job done. And I just, I feel like uh, God's hand was moving it, just, just opening the doors, opening the next thing you know. I'm, I feel a little bit like, like Daniel, you know, I'm just praying. They made me the, the this, this figure, but uh, I, I just stay on my knees and try to, <laughs> try to keep the uh, process going forward. Yeah, that's, that's the right approach, I can tell you. About this award, let me just, just a moment here. Who, like, like, who, who, who gets nominated for this? What, what sort of company were you involved with there? It's a, there's a hundred people, and uh, they were mostly CFOs because uh, they honor CFOs a lot in Treasury and Risk Magazine, and and because it, they use a lot of Treasury services, of course. Uh, the innovation that I was uh, trying to bring to the marketplace was considered in the uh, Treasury management area of the bank, and that's how I ended up in Treasury and Risk. Uh, a lot of the larger banks like BNY Mellon, um, PNC Bank, uh, Wells Fargo, former Wachovia Wells Fargo, uh, was involved in, in the medical banking project. So they, there were some nominations coming from the larger banks that brought me there. Warren Buffett was on the list. And just because my name starts with a C, I was right after him. And we were in, there was different sections of the list. We were in the heavy hitters. <laughs> oh, you kidding? Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah. So there you so, were listed yeah. right beside Warren Buffett. Well, what, what happened was we, we drove HIPAA into the banking world in a very profound way. And it wasn't that we were trying to do it. We were trying to craft a uh, society innovation to save $35 billion annually. What actually was happening from the banking perspective was we were driving a set of regulations that they didn't want to have anything to do with. So it, it, it became a little bit of a tussle uh, in, in the political world in Washington. So this is an opportunity given you by God. God opened these doors, placed a burden in your heart, he gave you knowledge and wisdom and a passion and the wherewithal and the right people to work around and so forth. And your achievements were stellar. Many people would think it's time to press my foot all the way to the floor and get as much out of this thing as I can and drive as fast and as hard 
You might have said, I have an extremely exciting career ahead of me. There may be no limits here. And you gave it all away. You stepped out of it altogether to dedicate your life to missions. Mm-hmm. Walk me through that process of, of how you, A, came to realize there might be something else for your life. Mm-hmm. B, the process of, of wrestling with, I, I think I'll just let this go and walk walk away. Let's do A and B first. The dawning that must have occurred to you, I think there's something additional for me. And it's not that to maintain uh, your position in, in that world would have been a bad thing at all. It would be a fantastic idea. But, but somehow it dawned on you, there might be another thing for me, maybe missions. And then you had to actually physically and intellectually extricate yourself from that world and embrace something uh, with far fewer guarantees. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and I, I attribute that, of course, to the Lord's leading in my life, um, always. Uh, but what was happening were, were doors were being opened uh, in my mind <laughs> in the World Bank. So the World Bank, uh, um, people think of a bank as lenders. The World Bank uh, has that aspect, of course, but they deal with comp- with countries that are developing countries. Sure. They, they have uh, weak infrastructure. They're very, the poorest of the poor. How do we take these people groups and move them into the 21st century? Uh, and it's a, you know, of course, it's, it's a very difficult problem. There's many, many aspects about about it. Um, so when I was when I was working around the world, um, I was my eyes were starting to open. I saw these people the way they lived, and it uh, it affected me profoundly. I, th- I think the Fellowship of the World Bank completely changed my thinking about what values, uh, what's valuable in life for me. Um, should I continue on a, on a career path that leads to uh, a lot of money, right, or, or, or um, impact in, in that way? Or should I try to um, develop a, a stra- a, an approach that sort of, calm some of the, the things that I was in my mind I was I was starting to think is there something I can do is there something I can do here um, uh, when when I joined I joined a, a local uh, NGO and uh, we were looking at orphanages in India and I flew over there and we were having a strategy meeting and one of the things that really impacted me at that meeting was, um, that we were going to fly in a, a nutritionist to look at the kids, but we couldn't afford it. Mm. And I thought, you know, I had just spent some time with the kids. There's 200 wonderful kids there. And I was thinking, my goodness, uh, this is, uh, I, would, I would like to see a nutritionist there. So I w- went and started talking to other orphanage owners about that issue. And it became apparent that orphanage Owners usually start with a with a heart cause. You know, they, they want to start an orphanage. Some of them get larger. Many of them have one orphanage. Some of them have more orphanages. Uh, but they have uh, multiple priorities, competing priorities. They they can't afford everything: education, food, you know, uh, clothing, medical, and it goes on and on. Shelter. So. Um, Bringing in a professional nutritionist to evaluate the kids is not something that they uh, that's usually on the list. 
So I decided to create an NGO that did just that. That's that. That's where the idea sprang from, um, and just focused on that. What we did is we convened a multidisciplinary team in East Tennessee, and we decided to focus our our efforts on two sites in Tanzania and Uganda. Um, now, I wanted to go to India because I, I loved India. I'd been there five times, and I wanted. I really just. I just love the people and the the environment in India. Fantastic place. Uh, but but we decided to to go with Africa. So uh, we went to those two sites and eventually decided on Kasese, Uganda. One of the big things that that determined that was the strength of the relationship that we have with the board of Crystallis Home. Crystallis Home is one of our local partners there, and they they take care of forty two children, orphans. Uh, they also take care of, of about 300 families in the community through a family development program. So we were, um, uh, we, we started our, our first farm to plate protocol there. Okay. So now, farm to plate. We've got about a minute before we go to the break. Talk to me about how you zeroed in on what your focus was going to be brought in a nutritionist, but you identified a certain problem that you've now dedicated your life to addressing. That took uh, experience on the field. I mean, you go in there with your preconceived ideas, mostly Western ideas, you know, about how to bring solutions to problems. And then you realize that 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 really is not a solution at all. Um, And you have to contextualize. So uh, we were guided in a contextualization, this like we'll call it contextualization thinking, through uh, the Rockefeller Foundation. Uh, the Rockefeller Foundation initiated a, a new 2050 Food Systems Vision Prize. And um, it was part of their effort to bring the best ideas in the world uh, to developing areas. And we uh, submitted an idea that uh, became a semifinalist. So there was one. Uh, it was, there was one thousand three hundred nineteen global submissions, and we became one of the semifinalists and one of four that was featured in their in the Rockefeller uh, Vision uh, Rockefeller website. Wow. Still is uh, drone enabled transport to mountain dwellers, and uh, so it's a multi thematic approach. Uh, it's very contextualized to the uh, environment that we're that we're trying to impact. Uh, but but it took a lot of research, a lot of visioning, a lot of signaling. They call it signals, uh, different things that are happening anywhere in the world that could uh, improve the impact that you have in, in the area. Mm-hmm. We created a system, uh, uh, vision, a systems vision, using systems thinking, called uh, drone food systems. Okay, I want to hear more about that. And we want to hear about what you're focusing on now in terms of addressing the problem of stunting. I know there's 140 million people affected directly, impacted by stunting. So we'll talk about that in a moment. He's John Casillas. I'm John Bradshaw. More of our conversation in just a moment. It was like a ticking time bomb just waiting to explode. And when it did, a city was plunged into chaos. A town was completely destroyed. More than 300 people were left dead and thousands left homeless. It remains one of the nation's least known atrocities. 
yet it was one of the most destructive race riots in United States history. Join It Is Written on location in Tulsa, Oklahoma for Black Wall Street as we look at the problem of evil. We'll investigate the destruction of a community and ask some searching questions. How can this happen? And who would do such a thing? How do good people commit truly wicked acts? Black Wall Street will take you there, to the very streets where evil reared its ugly head in a way not often seen. Don't miss Black Wall Street on It Is Written TV. Have you ever wondered if you're good enough to be saved? It's a common question that has discouraged many people, but it doesn't have to discourage you. Taking a Stand is a powerful five-part series presented by Pastor John Bradshaw that will help you discover the assurance of salvation. Call 1-888-664-5573 to order the Taking a Stand DVD or download it from our web store at www.itiswritten.shop. Jesus offers salvation as a free gift to everyone, including you. Welcome back to Conversations brought to you by It Is Written. I'm John Bradshaw. My guest is John Casillas from the organization Global Rise. John, we spoke a few moments ago about your journey to um, mission, your, your journey to humanitarian work. And, and, and you got there, um, maybe the less direct route, but your eyes were open. You said, this is a massive problem. I got to do something. God now has you doing something. And one of the things you're addressing is the issue of stunting. So explain that to me, what it is and why it is, and then why you get involved with that. Well, our vision is a world of healthy kids, uh, and uh, our mission is to work with uh, tribal leaders and villages that are passionate about transforming their communities uh, from disease and poverty to health and, and normal livelihoods. The, the key area that, that really impacted me uh, was... Uh, seeing kids that are short or are or, or, uh, malnourished, chronically malnourished. Okay. Where we're working, 50% of the children are stunted. So define stunting for me. Stunting is, is um, just when children do not get the nutrients that they need and they do not grow at the same rate as other children. Okay, so it's, so it's stunted growth. They're shorter they're, rather than they're shorter. They're shorter and also they... They have cognitive disabilities. Oh, uh, that's, a, that's well. very so, cool. So, so short being instead of growing to five feet ten, they're growing to what? Yeah, they they, they might grow less than that. Yeah, okay. Uh, and they might have trouble in school. Uh, they're prone to infections more. So their lives are normally more diseased, and they end up uh, dying sooner. Oh, so it's not just that they're shorter. It's just that it's it's the co- whatever's causing them to be shorter and and you'd want them to grow to their potential anyway, yeah. that causes a whole raft of other problems. It, it does. It, it, it leads to, in, in, you know, is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that really uh, looked at some of these issues about how to take uh, 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 the development monies and efforts and move them to the first thousand days of life because that can completely change the trajectory of the kids um, uh, in the future. Yeah. So... So stunting, by the way, can be reversed, okay? Oh, yeah. But it has to be, as far as we know now, there are some uh, that, that don't agree, but many, many agree that the first thousand days of life is when you need to act. 
So what I'm hearing you say, if I'm, I'm listening between the lines, it's not that these kids don't have food, or maybe it's not even that they don't have enough food. Mm-hmm. So what is it? If, if you have food and you're eating, aren't you going to grow? It is such a, it's such a quagmire in that way. It's, you know, I was talking to the mayor of Cassesi, and he's like, we have, John, we have plenty of food. We just don't know how to eat. During our survey, we talked to uh, families. We walked up and down the mountains there. And um, one of the ladies says, you know, um, we, just, we just feel full. You know, we know that we've eaten when we feel full. Uh, the problem is that what's on the plate is not balanced. Okay. They can eat a lot of carbohydrates uh, and have very little greens or very little uh, fruit or other, other things that, that really they need in order to, to grow harmoniously. Yeah, uh, I've, I've seen that in Africa. My, myself, where there's tons of food, but it's one kind of food. It's one kind, yeah. And, okay, and and it and it's it's traditional. It's it's culture. Sure. Like in where, where we're at, uh, there's a lot of um, they call it matoke. So matoke is is plantain and it's mashed, and and when they give you a plate of it, it's, it's huge, you know, and and there's very little of it, other things. So it's a training process to, for people to understand it. But you can't train them with foods and ingredients that they don't have, right? Or they don't have access to. You know, and, and sometimes it is really truly, you know, that they, they just don't have access to the foods that they want to eat, you know. Uh, but many times it's just that they're eating the foods in the wrong way. So that's where a nutritionist and a nutrition-based approach would be helpful. It isn't necessarily that there's not enough food, even though that may be the case. It's those deeply ingrained habits, uh, got to break out of those. It causes uh, stunting and, I want to uh, reiterate, a whole raft of health problems that accompany that. Okay, so you see that and you say, we want to address that. How do you address it? Yeah, and that's, that is also, I mean, if it was an easy problem, uh, it would have been addressed by many others, uh, and, and, and many others try, and, and, and some succeed. Well, I'm interested here because going back to your days in um, medical banking, you brought a very innovative approach to a very real problem. Now you've got another very real problem, kind of different. It's going to take another very innovative approach. That's right. It, it, it does. It takes a very different approach because otherwise we'll, we continue to, to just experience the same thing over and over again. And really, the, the population that we're dealing with, there's over a million Bukhansa that live in the Renzori Mountains. Uh, uh, that's an estimate. But uh, they're forgotten by the world. Mm. There's, there's no one up there trying to help those people. They, they are on their own. Uh, the kids are running over dead bodies in the jungles from wars. They're coming in. They're orphaned. Uh, it's 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 a rough it's a rough go. Okay, but what's what's worse is you know the 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 poor people living in the towns are at least they at least have roads, electricity, uh, water. When you go up into the mountains, the government is at a standstill. They don't know what to do. You know, when we were doing the survey and we were walking up those hills, I realized those women they walk over those hills with a baby in their back and a jackfruit that's weighing 20 pounds, you know, to go to the market or go somewhere to sell it for 80 cents, maybe 50 cents. Mm. Um, and their, their, their average income is much less. It's, we, we think it's like 50 cents a day, but the World Bank has figures of $1.25 a day for extreme poverty. So 
there's there's like a, a income divide between those the poor in the towns and the poor living up in the mountains, which have zero. They have nothing. They have adobe huts. They sleep on on the dirt and and things like that. How do you change that? It's very difficult. Well, um, first of all, they do need nutrition training. That's first and foremost. And and many of the women are very anxious to learn. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. So you you, you go to Mrs. Smith or the the equivalent of Mrs. Smith in those mountains and you say, hey, uh, the kids aren't doing well. Yes, she understands that. You're eating this and not that. Uh Uh-huh, I get the picture. How easy is it to institute change? You talk to a smoker who's bringing lung cancer on, you're going to die sooner or later. Really hard to get a smoker to change. I understand addiction is involved there. Now you're talking to somebody who's got generational lifestyle habits Mm -hmm. that are uh, counterproductive. There's an openness to addressing that? There is an openness. Uh, The women are are very interested in how they feed their children. Um, most households are headed by women where we're working, and, and they're farmers. They have about an acre and a half of land. Why are most households headed by women? Uh, many times the men uh, leave. They, 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 they're, they're, there, are men, there are men households there, but that's sort of in the minority. Okay. I would say 80% of the, of the uh, women of the households are headed by well, women. Well, when you say leave, they've gone to the city to get a job, or they've just left? They've left. Oh? They've left. Uh, the 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 women are struggling to try to make ends meet. Sure, they are. To feed the kids. Yeah. They're walking to town. Now, if I wasn't walking those mountains, I probably wouldn't have realized this. But the walks are just difficult, man. <laughs> I was sweating every day when we were creating. When we were doing our survey, it took us a month. Every day I came home and I was sweating. I took a shower and I went to bed. You know, it was tough. But they do this. As they do this every day, they're the, so, and so I was thinking about it, and I said, you know, why don't we get donkeys? I mean, they can only carry a certain amount of food on their hands or on their heads. Why can't we? And, and they they have to walk from the tops of the mountains to get down to the roads, right? And then back up again, and then and then go out, and then go all the way back up again. Yeah. It takes all day. So uh, I I asked the mayor about it. He said. Donkeys were already tried, but they were hunted for food. Oh, no kidding. So, you know, our first thought was Uberized donkeys. See, we think it's time to take, it's high time to take high tech into the jungle. It, it, we, we have to do it. We're doing it in other areas of our lives, you know. We have Uber, which, you know, we can just call the taxi, and we don't have to wait 45 minutes for the sure. taxi anymore. We just, well, why can't we use their phones to call drones? Well, <laughs> we, we shouldn't rush through this. Why can't we use phones to call drones in the mountains of Uganda? Yes. Okay, well, if you were to ask me, I'll tell you t- two reasons. One, because they don't have phones. Two, because they don't have drones. And three, <laughs> if they had either, where are they going to charge them? So, so can you answer those questions so that brings us into the, the good sense of all this? Or is it all just pie in the sky? Well, it's a vision. It's, it's a 30-year vision. But... Uh, there's already a lot of work around um, putting mountain broadband into place in, in the area. Okay, sure. Uh, so you're going to meet that when it's ready? There's there's three well-known people. Facebook is one, Mark Zuckerberg, um, Elon Musk with uh, SpaceX, and, and he's trying to develop mountain broadband. 
as well as Jeff Bezos is is getting involved in it as well. So there's a there's a big push to make that available right now. Um, they also have phones, by the way. It's you know it's funny, but uh, you know they they might not have other things, but they have phones, um, and and many many have phones. Uh, they use the phones for for actually calling up electricity. They can use the phones to pay for electricity automatically. The electricity comes on in the house. Well, that's that's that's. I mean, that's pretty high tech. Yeah, that's. High I, tech, I don't yeah. mean that in a patronizing yeah. way. To to be able to use your phone, I don't think I can. I think it's really cool too. I mean, <laughs> good. I think I could pay my phone bill on the uh, my my power bill on the phone, but I don't know if I can call electricity in. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, it, it is. They they actually can do that. There's a there's a an enabler a technology platform that enables that. And we're talking about a technology platform that enables transport, okay? The government is, is, is uh, budgeting for roads uh, to increase uh, uh, commerce in the areas, uh, in the towns and such. Uh, when we spoke to them, they were talking about uh, terrain being one of the deepest issues that, that they have in the mountains, poverty, nutrition. Um, and they were talking about donkeys, but then that didn't work. So then they said, well, we'll put a tram up like they have in Chattanooga, the other tram that goes to the top of the mountain and comes back. Uh-huh. But that's uh, environmentally insensitive, and it's very costly. And so I, I asked them about drones. Drones are being used by many uh, other industries. They're actually revolutionizing the way that we do agriculture, the way we spray pesticides and things like that. Uh, why can't we use drones for transport? Drones um, uh, are... are Sort of like, I, I don't know if you remember when computers came out, there was always a new version coming every three yeah. months, every oh, yeah. three months and every three months. So drones are very much like that. They are advancing rapidly in technology. Boeing actually has a 500-pound drone prototype. Uh, it's called a flying truck. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I can, I can yeah. understand why. <laughs> so there is a lot, of, a lot happening in drone technology. So we spoke to drone operators, drone aviation experts, and they, they indicated that, yeah, this, this is a possibility of actually flying uh, uh, crops from the mountains to the markets. What sort of distance are we talking? It's about three miles, maybe. Okay, okay. Uh, so three to five miles, it could be more. Yeah, but uh, it's typically but a pretty it's, short hop. But, but it's okay. For, yeah. Now, dr- when you talk about drones and the power that they need to, in order to carry something yeah. and then to fly that long, the, you know, there's a lot of technology behind it. But, um, but it's, it's, it's possible. Question for you, Mrs. Smith. I keep referring to Mrs. Smith in Uganda. She wants to sell her jackfruit, weighs 25 pounds. How is she going to afford to rent the drone? All she does is she calls up the drone with her phone. This is in the vision state. Of course okay. it is, yeah. so, so, But this is what we're working towards. Okay, She calls up the drone on the phone. The drone is dispatched. It goes to her place. There's a platform that uh, where she has to have it. Sure. It picks up the jackfruit, and then it flies down to the market. The marketplace, they take the jackfruit. Uh, all parties have already registered onto a bank account. The funds are transferred to Mrs. Smith's bank account. She has access to them on her phone. It's just that simple. This would... But that complex revolutionize life as it is known. Although what I what I kind of like about that is you're not really changing the entire way of life. You're, you're, you're giving a transportation system that will give Mrs. Smith four hours, five hours of her day back. 
It's really important. We're not changing anything. We're overlaying it with a technology platform yeah. that makes them more efficient. Yeah. Now, why is that important to stunting? That's the key thing, right? Sure. The reason why is because, without exception, studies show that uh, malnutrition and poverty are linked. No question. They're linked. And there's many reasons for that, but there's many groups that want to go into the mountains uh, and they want to change the malnutrition port of, of the equation. And, the, and, and for us, and, and that's good work, okay, but for us it was like putting one wheel on the axle. After we looked at the, the analysis guided through the, with the Rockefeller Foundation, we knew we had to address poverty too. So the other wheel that we're putting on the axle to create the transformation, transformation engine is the drone transport system. With that, we'll be able to raise their incomes maybe from 50 cents to $2 per day. That would be revolutionary to them. The other thing that we're doing in our design is once the drone transport system is operational, of course, people won't be wanting to actually, you know, to walk down the mountains. <laughs> They'll be wanting to take it. We believe we have to prove that out, okay? They'll be wanting to hire it for their, for their crops. Uh, but before they can, they have to register with, uh, with the, the Renzori food system so, and, and attend village training. They have to do that. So it's a, it's a mandate. They go through village training, and then they can onboard into the drone system. And, and the village training is continuous. In village training, we deal with three primary topics, nutrition, uh, f- farming or soil fertility, and financial planning. Those are the, the key areas that we want to uh, help them with. So as they're making their money, we want them to know how to, how to spend it wisely, something that we, we probably would have liked to have been taught when we were kids too, right? Mm. <laughs> um, Everybody should know. Yeah. And, and soil fertility is huge there because uh, the climate changes have affected the soil erosion. So they're always looking for ways to make the soil more fertile. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we want to bring expertise on that to bear on that. And also, uh, of course, nutrition to, to move the kids through stunting. Another thing we're doing is we're, uh, we want them to uh, register their children uh, to a PHR, a personal health record. This personal health record will then keep track of them. And then we have the data uh, from a public health perspective that gradually implements the types of trainings that we need at village training to move them from stunted to healthy. Fantastic. Fantastic. There's a lot happening. You know, it reminds me there's just a great need in the world. And God is calling on many people to make a difference where a difference needs to be made. I'm with John Casillas. We'll be back with more from our conversation in just a moment. More and more people are watching It Is Written TV. They're watching their favorite It Is Written programs, listening to inspiring sermon series, and much more. They're watching them here, here, and even here. See for yourself why people are turning to It Is Written TV to watch their favorite Christian programs live and on demand. Watch It Is Written TV for free anytime on Roku, Apple TV, and at itiswritten.tv. Planning for your financial future is a vital aspect of Christian stewardship. For this reason, It Is Written is pleased to offer free planned giving and estate services. For information on how we can help you, please call 800-992-2219. 
call today or visit our website, hislegacy.com. Call 800-992-2219. Welcome back to Conversations brought to you by It Is Written. My guest is John Casillas from Global Rise. That's an exciting work you're doing in Uganda. I know you mentioned earlier you'd like to broaden that. You plan to broaden that to India where stunting affects how many kids? Over 63 million kids. It's the, it's the worst stunting zone on the planet. That's massive. And Guatemala you've mentioned and maybe it's going to spread beyond that. A few moments ago, you talked about what's coming with the, the, the drone uh, food transportation system that's going to be implemented. But I don't want anybody to think that the work of Global Rise in Uganda is all future. What's going on right now? So to, to create a community nutrition program requires uh, detailed household knowledge, uh, culture, food preferences. We need to really get into the mind of the Bukanzu, the tribe there, and other tribes to understand how they view food. And uh, we, we actually started that by implementing a farm-to-plate protocol. The farm-to-plate protocol, by the way, was developed by a nutritionist in the University of Costa Rica, uh, who I am now married to. <laughs> so Karen uh, developed this, 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 this program that looks at the environment uh, at the orphanage that we're working at, at Cristela's home, and the foods, the, the food, the way that they prepare the foods, the ingredients, and so forth. Um, and as we started to explore how to improve the food at the orphanage, we started becoming more acquainted with people in the community and how they view food, of course, and the different um, ways to improve food and food consumption. So that was a, a really big a bonus for us. We were able to work at the orphanage food system to learn. That really uh, fast, fast-paced our learning to the community because we always wanted to move from the orphanage to the community. And uh, when we went into the community, we started doing uh, a survey. The survey took us a month, and it was uh, grueling. <laughs> it was grueling. We had to actually uh, look at the entire area and using statistical modeling, find out which village we were going to we were going to uh, actually uh, survey. There's 1,650 vil- uh, households in in the Kerembe One, which is where we surveyed, and we we surveyed about 187 of, of those uh, of households, and it was a detailed survey. I mean, we we got into the foods they ate, the foods that they would like to eat, the number of children, the the, the sex of the children. Uh, who the head of the household was, how their uh, um, uh, making household finances work, if they're farming, how much land they have, the types of crops that they grow. All those things are, are essential uh, to understanding how to develop a community nutrition program. So we, we gathered the data, uh, and now we're putting together a community nutrition program. One of our board members, Sylvia Klinger, uh, is... Uh, is has a uh, an organization in Chicago that she runs uh, interns run run through it. University of Illinois is involved. Uh, University of Northern uh, Florida uh, is involved, and uh, so we have this this amazing. You know, we we've already run through sixteen uh, masters and PhD new interns. Our initial thoughts of the community nutrition program, and they've applied their thinking 
so that we're perfecting uh, the program. And we've done that during this whole COVID phase where, where it's, it, you can't travel. It, I mean, you could travel, but it's a little bit uh, uh, risky. So, uh, so this is what we've been doing is putting together the community nutrition program. Next on our agenda is to have BioGardens, which is our local NGO that saves indigenous knowledge in, in the Bukonzo area, in the Renzori foothills, to have them help us to implement it locally, to test it. So that's our, our next step. One of the things that we learned during the survey, I, I want to point this out, because this is, my board is very technologically oriented. You know, they're, 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 they're in the tech business, in banking, in, in health IT, in, in software, information systems, and things like that as well as nutrition. So they, we have that sort of innovation orientation where we want to bring high tech in, into the jungle, right? Um, well, one of the things that we were looking at is, is uh, as, we, as we did the survey, it really was physically exhausting uh, to do it. Um, but we were looking at how to take what we did which is critical for a good community nutrition program, and apply it to other areas in the Renzori Mountains. Uh, and we came up with this idea called Geospatial Nutrition Profiles, or GNPs. GNPs, basically, if, if we can establish that a, a, a village is geospatially equivalent to another village in the Renzori Mountains with the same tribe, we don't have to redo the survey. Sure. Uh, it sounds basic, but we have to prove it. Otherwise, we have to do the survey again. Right. And the surveys are expensive and they're time-consuming. You know, so uh, we're proving out geospatial nutrition prov- profiles as well, uh, so that we can really scale our program across the entire Renzoris. So, imagine you might have other partners on the ground, or do you? Or is this something that you are? It's all you and your team. We we decided early on. We had to learn. That was all us, okay? But, but we, we, we quickly learned who the players were in the community. Uh, and, and, we re- and we, of course, realized that we can't promote this, uh, or this health campaign by ourselves. Fortunately, an organization called the Cassesi Better Living Center uh, was already in the works. <laughs> I, th- I look at it as something that was in the works. The Lord placed us, you know. So the leaders of that, it's, it's owned by the Adventist Church, but the primary investor of the Kasesi Better Living Center is actually the president of Uganda, interestingly enough. Oh, that's friends in high places. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, when they heard about what we were doing, they, we organized a meeting with them, and this was part of the Rockefeller Foundation's uh, work to, to work with the community. Over 80 leaders came to the meeting uh, Many in the mountain churches and in, in, the, in, the, in the, the, the town, the mayor, the government's office, um, they all came. For two days we met, and we discussed the, the deep problems that are stopping Kasesi District from advancing. And uh, everybody uh, with, without uh, any dissenters agreed that the number one problem was nutrition. And we were there representing what we were doing in nutrition. The follow-up on that meeting is they asked us to develop their nutrition program. Mm. So we're actually, it was something that we had planned to do, uh, but now we have this great partner to do it with the Cassesi Better Living Center. 
Another partner that's very integral to, to our work uh, because they, they do workforce development, which is important uh, to train people how to implement the nutrition program, but also going forward to work in the information systems and drone aviation and all those other things that are required to implement a, a drone food system. And that partner is Renzori International University. So Renzori International University is a new university uh, they they actually um, are getting their 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 licenses now, and uh, but they were they they have campus. They have actually two campuses. One near the Renzori foothills, which is still uh, raw land, but it's been architected, so we know exactly what it's going to look like. And then in Cassesi, uh they have uh, they've renovated about six seven buildings that are where where the students will be. One of the buildings is presently under construction during the COVID time. Amazing, uh, amazing. And um, Dr. Nathaniel Walembe uh, founded that. He also founded the Cassessi Better Living Center. He's an institution builder. I, that's why I call him. The guy is amazing. When he found out what we were doing, he's, he made the connections locally and um, invited me to uh, the board of trustees, and I accepted. So I'm on the board of trustees of the Renzori International University now. And we're building uh, a tech innovation hub there, which will do workforce development for us uh, as we move into uh, those types of needs. So we'll be able to take uh, the young people there. By the way, Uganda is the fifth youngest population in the world. The average age is 16.7 years old. Okay, young. This is a young population. Mm. Move them uh, from where they're at, you know, in Kasesi in the mountains through training programs and certificate programs and employ them in the uh, Renzori food system. I'm interested to back up and ask you about the farm-to-plate protocol. Uh That sounds to me like, uh, you know, that's where you're putting food on plates and really implementing change um, in the dining area. Uh, Your wife, Karen, designed that. What is it? Walk me through it briefly because I've got a couple of other things to ask you. When I first heard of nutrition... For me, it was just food, sure. but it isn't just food. It's how they prepare the food. It's the, the place where they prepare the food. It's how they clean, hand-washing. You know, uh, the farm-to-play protocol deals with, uh, at, at its very, very minimum, it's making sure that the farm is producing the nutrients that the kids actually need. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. So rather than, rather than looking at what food's available, you're saying, what do we need? How do we get it? Where do we begin this thing and get it from... From the, from the idea stage all the way through to the here it is and this is what's good for you. Precisely. And, 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 and the, the need is dictated by the health of the children. So the nutritionist looks at the nutritional status of the children and she says, okay, this, these kids need this. this yeah, this they're deficient here. How yeah. do we figure out a way greens, to, more, to get that there? More spinach in, more nut, peanuts. Those types of things. Yeah. Those are nutritionist questions that I don't have that she does. Yeah. So we had to go to, and, and part of it was going to the farmer's market. We priced out, I think she told me, between 150 and 200 uh, uh, food items and did baseline studies. Then we had to change the food budget to accommodate those items. Remember that? <laughs> and, and then we had to look at the kitchen, which was smoke-filled. Every time we walked in there, we were crying sure. and coughing. It was horrible. We completely had to gut the kitchen, uh, take out a lot of the, the hoods and, and open up the roofs and open up windows. And that was a real project, infrastructure project. 
during that project, we met local engineering firm, and and they provide all of our engineering expertise now uh, as we build our vision. Fantastic. Everything everything worked like a, a hand in glove. It, yeah. It's so farm to play protocol is creating the the environment at the orphanage uh, that will render the kids from stunting to healthy. There are some stunted children that have entered the. Uh, so the, two the questions for you. One is. How do you see this plugging into mission? Where take me to the to the mission aspect, or how this opens the door for mission? So, our our view, you know, with Globalize, mission is all about the health message. It, it really is. Uh, but we also know that you can leave a person healthy, but but their salvation can be in question, right? So we're focused on the health. We feel like we're John the Baptist going in. Uh, prepare ye the way of the Lord, right? With the health message, that's what we're doing. Uh, and then beyond that, we're working with the church uh, authorities who need to then plug in the evangelistic component. We don't have the expertise that It Is Written has, you know, to do evangelism. Uh, we have a lot of stories we might tell up, in the, but we don't know the, that whole area. Uh, we just focus on the health message, bringing good health to to kids in the mountains. I read somewhere where a writer with a considerable amount of wisdom said Jesus uh, mingled among people as one who desired their good, won their confidence, ministered to their needs, and you're certainly doing that. Let me ask you this question. I want to find out from you, 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 you're a Christian believer. What does the gospel mean to you? What does Jesus mean to you personally? Uh, you know, what it means to me is transform, transforming my life every day. Because the need is not just every day, it's really, it's, it's every moment I have. Uh, I am prone to go astray. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's programmed in me. <laughs> um, and uh, I hate to say it, but I, you know, I just, it, I need the Lord to straighten me up every day. And it's very, something as pragmatic as that. I want to live a healthier life. I want to live a happier life. I want to live in the society of angels. I do. I want to live in the society of people that I love, and I want to be loved, you know. And um, that's, to me, the gospel, uh, uh, the good news, that God does love us, that he, we don't have to be dying in, in sin or in guilt from sin, we can go to his feet. We can ask for forgiveness. He gives it to us graciously, even when we can't forgive ourselves, but we should. And then uh, he takes our hand, and he walks us through life together. Mm. Yes, he does. Hey, I know uh, Global Rise is a donor-funded organization. So tell me how people can get on board and help you with what you're doing. Good question. <laughs> so I, I want to sh- show you something. Uh, that is great. That <laughs> so is great. This is Twiga. And Twiga has a crusade. Okay? Twiga's crusade is to kick stunting out of Kasesi. That was a battle cry that the community created. Okay? So we just adopted it. So Twiga's crusade is to kick stunting out of Kasesi. Twiga is available to everybody that gives us $25 a month. Okay? So when someone donates $25 a month, we have a beautiful family in St. Louis 
that will mail out Twiga to their home. And uh, if they have their friends um, uh, join us, okay, then we'll mail Twiga to their friends. But we'll also then give them Tembo. Oh, fantastic. Tembo the elephant then uh, goes to the person that gets Twiga because their friend joined. Yeah. And once they have another friend that joins, we will give them Pharaoh the rhino. Beautiful. Okay. Look at that. Pharaoh the rhino. Far- by, by the way, each one has a special message. And then up to three friends join and they get uh, Pandu the zebra. Hey, who makes these? So, um, yeah, there's stories behind them. All of these are made by the woman in Kasesi. Now, there's cotton in the fields. They pick the cotton. They stuff the animals with the cotton. And, uh, and we buy them from the woman. So we're helping women in that way. Uh, and, and actually, this whole project started when we met uh, a woman who was making these in her restaurant. And we said, boy, those are really cute. She's like, after a while, she, we, she, we came in and she's like, you know, can you, um, can we talk here? We, I want you, is it possible for you to buy a whole bunch of these? Because I'm trying to expand my restaurant, right? And it all worked out. We, we actually ended up buying a lot of them. Karen uh, developed a project in the University of Costa Rica uh, to sell these animals. Before you know it, we sold 700 of them. Nice. And she was able to expand her restaurant. Fantastic. So somebody wants to support you and end up with Twigger and Twigger's friends, uh, how do they do that? Where do they go? Go to www.globalrise.org. Globalrise.org. Globalrise with an S dot O-R-G. And uh, click on the donation button and it'll show everything. Yeah. Actually, the Twigger's crusade will come up. All they have to do is press join us and, and it'll explain the rest. John, this is a great project. You're, you're changing lives, saving lives, and as this unfolds, Global Rise is going to have a major, major impact on whole communities of people. Wish you the very best. Thank you so much for taking your time. Thank you, John. It was a pleasure to be here. Great fun. Thank you. And thank you for joining us. This has been really a blessing for me, and I hope for you. Here's John Casillas from Global Rise. I'm John Bradshaw. And this has been our conversation. Oh,